There was just something about it as we were going into the chance. I just like it just somehow the she has a presence to her. <laughs> You're humming, Eric. Oh, thank you. I was wondering what that noise was. <laughs> so what do we got? We got all sorts of fun things tonight about uh, the true nature of reality as being truly existent, essential quality that makes everything what it is in the way that it is all the time and in all ways, both changing and unchanging, um, both singular and multiple, and both interdependent and dependent. And so based on that assumption that that's the way things really are, then what is the question? What do we do with that is the question. And uh, tonight we have this wonderful article uh, from a book, actually a chapter from a book by Jan Westerhoff called Nagarjana's uh, Madhyamaka and on Swabhava, which is a really helpful article. I, I wonder, did people get a chance to read that? Am I frozen or what? Okay. I, I made it uh, about halfway. <laughs> Uh, honesty, honesty. All right, you guys had other other tasks. Yes, <laughs> you guys I got were going way. wild. I got partway through this, but after getting through those other two, so <laughs> we're like inundated, right? Yeah, there's a flood, you know. So from last class, there was a little project that uh, Emily and Cynthia bravely and generously uh, volunteered to undertake. 
do do Cynthia do you want to like uh, explain what the project was do people remember that there was like some like takeaway that we assigned Cynthia to I, I will attempt uh, I, at this point I don't even know if I can fully explain it but I will before I do that I will say I just sent you guys both a link to another location for the seven texts that includes the yarmulke one the not the Jewish headwear um, but it's a different version slightly modernized mm, so good, good, that's yeah. just for you two for everybody else in terms of attempting to answer what Derek or just asked um, the first, I guess, in response to my question about whether there were still Abhidharma, uh, say, uh, believers uh, that could respond to Nagarjuna's critiques, that was sort of my first question. Uh, and he had asked about getting lists in chronological order of the various Abhidharma literature, and that was sort of one part of the project, but it somewhat expanded into a larger uh, investigation of this notion of Svabhava and its sources in the early Abhidharma texts. So we were looking at the Theravadan and, um, you know, original Pali texts and such, in Pali, of course. Just kidding. Yeah, so uh, do people resonate with that that objective? like? Um, does it make any sense to look at who actually holds this view of Swabhava in the way that Nagarjuna projects it on other people? Is that a reasonable... Like, did anybody actually view? say the things that he's saying? Yeah. Yeah, and some of the um, stuff I was reading, working on this this week with Cynthia and Derek, were looking at exactly which schools at the time Nagarjuna was writing or, or in the lead up to it, exactly which schools believed in this stuff and what exactly did they say about it and which schools and texts was Nagarjuna specifically responding to. So we found some resources that seem to have landed on a few key schools and texts and some good articles kind of fleshing out the, the nuances of exactly what he may have been reacting to and also certain things he may have been trying to sort of agree with but add to versus things he was fully disagreeing with so it it seems to be a rather nuanced but very interesting topic <laughs> in my opinion i mean i i think this is really interesting i want to read what you've come up with but it seems like it's pertinent that probably the problem is we, we all believe in Svobhava. I mean, I guess that's what attracts us to the teachings is we say like, yeah, if someone screwed me over last week, I still think they screwed me over. <laughs> Who's that I who got screwed? You know, like. You still there's think there's a day. That even the older schools, like the Theravada, you know, the older Abhidharma systems have totally destroyed their analysis and we're getting hurt by it. You know, so it's like, I know I need to hear this because I believe in Svabhava. So I'm, even though I've been in this class with Derek for 17 years, I don't know. But I, I'm interested to hear. Well, there's the, even just the question of does it mean, does Svabhava mean what we think it means? Oh, okay. I mean, maybe I'm painting it with too broad a brush by just saying the, the permanent eye or a permanent something. Okay. Yeah, so experientially, what what in what sense are we clinging to something 
that is the root of our personal samsara and our suffering, our cycle of suffering. And and uh, what is that that we cling to? And and what is it not? You know, what what are the uh, so, um, uh, anybody have a question for Emily or Cynthia? Any? Uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll compile some of the the readings into a comp a viable package for people and circulate. So. Um, yeah, can we grill them after we've done the reading? Yeah, I think that's better. Let's let's gr definitely grill like, them. Or yes, bake no, them let's or let's roast not view us as experts. This is or not pants like sear them. One it's of, not one like of we have any expertise. We've just like reviewed a little bit of literature here and seen some salient points and want to share it. You know, let you read. Well, it I told Derek we should make everyone write a paper about it. So, <laughs> and and so I I polled everyone else and they thought, well, you should go first. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I I totally I like I like totally will. Go for it, you know. Do do us a paper on like. So did did you get to the conclusion of what schools it is that he's like complaining about and which ones he's you know affiliated with? Yeah. And... So according to this one piece, but this very well researched, he's mainly complaining about the Sarvastivadins and specifically two texts. And then interestingly, this author thinks he's actually in somewhat of agreement with the Pudgalavadins, which is interesting because when you first see their philosophy, it seems like they're talking about Swabhava, but this author sort of painstakingly explains the ways in which actually subtly he might not be totally refuting them. And then the other one, um, the Mahasangikas. Um, so those are the two schools. He's not fully disagreeing with these sort of... Um, updating some of their views so that was that's the key takeaway in terms wow. of wow i yeah. i didn't get to the putgalavadin part i, I got <laughs> yeah, it's the, that's, that's really strange because uh -huh, they're the ones that believed in a self they were the ones that were critiqued for believing in a self -only. well yeah. not a self but a person they believe a person. in a person yeah so you, so it's really interesting how this he's not saying he agrees with them but he's saying he uh nagarjuna's arguments are not as antithetical to theirs as it might seem and that in fact Nagarjuna may have been trying to convince them to agree with him and to not agree with the Sarvastivadins. So it's a very interesting set of arguments. Um, and he, he was running for the provost position at the monastery I think that was so that, good, was, yeah. that was the reason for his uh, efforts. And then uh, did you pick up on what like what what was it about the way things or Swabhava was presented in those two particular texts? Was there anything in particular that he was upset about? Yeah, I mean, to Cynthia's point, let me <laughs> circle back to everyone with more specifics, but, um, you know, he's... He... I'm like trying to get back into it now. Er, er, no, you can't look it up. You have to do it off the top of your head. Otherwise, we'll come back to you in the future after you write your paper. You can yeah. put in your paper. Yeah. But Eric, Eric, Eric mentioned it when he said he's still upset at somebody from last week. 
And the reason that he's still upset about somebody from last week is that the the person and the activity that happened last week still exists now. And that was the view that was in those two texts, was that the dharmas exist throughout the three times. It's the tri-temporality or whatever they, they like to call yeah, it. Yeah, I love your special effects, Cynthia. Chris? Oh. So there's the, um, there's the text that it looks like we'll be looking at in class six, uh, overturning the objections. And I think there's a real like connection point between this conversation and that text of like, you know, whose objections is he overturning? Uh, because my understanding is that that text doesn't exactly say. Um, and, um, <laughs> and, and also I, I, I um, was listening to a talk that Jan Westerhoff gave uh, earlier today. And he talks about that text and says that he's not only uh, responding to the Abhidharmans, but also to some non-Buddhist schools. Um, so that's just kind of part of the cultural milieu to be considered as well. Yeah, there was another piece that I haven't read yet, Derek, but one of those other ones I sent you that I think is all about that. The, the non-Buddhist and Buddhist views that were being, that Nagarjuna was refuting, and I think making the case that you know, that's an important piece of it, too. So um, I'll look into that further in this article as well. Okay, but f focus your paper on the Buddhist schools, please. Got it. <laughs> hey, so uh, let's dive in. It's called Interpretations of Swabhava. And... Uh, he starts off by saying the notion of Swabhava provides the central conceptual point around which the greatest part of Nagarjuna's Madhyamaka revolves. I revolve around you, it, um, although it's never used in the sutras. Should I pause there? Any comments? Never used in the sutras. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> The Buddha was so careful, he never said that term. Or so clear. Or maybe, maybe he had good editors and they took it out. Um, and it's rare in the Pali Canon. The term Subhava often translated as inherent existence or own being acquired a dominating role in the thought of the Madhyamaka. They started to obsess about it. Maybe there was something, he had some power to mentally erase it from all the minds of who was listening. Mm. Since we know that there were no editors, I mean, there was no, there were no written texts. So the editing was all being done in their minds. So maybe for some reason that word was just getting erased from their minds. Most likely, most likely he had a way of doing like find and replace <laughs> without... You know, that's like a non-implicative negation is you find that concept in the minds of being and you delete it without, anyway. Um, despite its centrality, its status is fundamentally a negative one. You guys always focusing on the negative. If not indeed the central concern of Madhyamaka argumentation is to demonstrate that uh, despite our intuitions to the contrary, as Eric pointed out, so Baba does not exist. The notion of emptiness denotes precisely the absence of Swabhava. So if we're trying to understand emptiness, it seems like we need to understand Swabhava. 
and in what way Swabhava is an incorrect uh, assumption or view. Well, um, yes, Derek, sir. Yes, sir. Um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the sutras weren't written. Um, none of his uh, uh, teachings were written down for, what, several hundred years? That's, that's what they say, yeah. 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 So, so maybe the whole notion of Sabava was just too complicated when it was heard. If he did speak about it, and it wasn't included in the writings, I mean, we don't know that. No, what we do down was accurate. We have no idea. Yeah, the Buddha could have been like it a was, total theist. It was a conspiracy. It was a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. They all got together well, and said, we don't like this idea, we're going to take it out. It took them 200 yeah, years to edit that out. Then finally it's they too got heady. It. It's too heady. It just sounds like gibberish, so let's forget it. So, uh, there's, there's uh, a, a number of difficulties when uh, we try to understand this. He says, in, like many philosophical terms it's used in a variety of ways in different traditions so they're all speaking about like different things the early buddhist abhidharma metaphysics whatever that is uses swabhava in a different way than do the later madhyamakas their uses in turn different from dharmakirti's use the famous logician of the concept as well as from the Yogacara notion of the three natures. I found that a helpful note just to like rem- remember that oh wow, the three natures which are like the three ways of of uh, extrapolating the, uh, which is an extrapolation of the two truths by the Yogacara tradition uses the term swabhava, tree swabhava is the term in Sanskrit, tree being three so the three natures, <laughs> and one of them is the fully perfected nature, and I and I like I real I hadn't really thought of that before maybe or, or I did and forgot about it probably, but the Madhyamakas must have objected tremendously just to that idea that's a fully fully perfected swabhava. You know, talk about picking your words carefully. Second problem is that. Um, The uh, everybody's inconsistent in their usage on it. When one is looking at Madhyamaka arguments, it's often quite hard to attribute anything like a defensive philosophical theory to the proponents of Swabhava at all. Uh, the way it becomes defined and used in, in by the opponents of Swabhava makes it into something that's so silly, it's like, who could have possibly held this view? And um, uh, so the, the the feeling is that they're set up as straw men or whatever. So in order to get a grasp of this, he says uh, it's essential to appreciate that Swabhava has three different, three important conceptual dimensions. There's an ontolo- ontological dimension, uh, a cognitive dimension and a semantic dimension. This chapter will spell out the first two of these three aspects. And I truncated the article, I believe, and I did not include the cognitive, I think. 
No, I did include it. Yeah, okay. And uh, towards the end of that, that paragraph, which is the fourth on that first page, he says, uh, I'm not, not trying to argue or analyze Swabhava in other Buddhist schools than, other than the Madhyamaka. And uh, by explaining that, I'm hoping to also address the difficulty of giving a clear account of what a proponent of Swabhava asserts and why this position might be a philosophical one to be taken seriously, which is uh, gets to Eric's point. It's like we all have this uh, presumption of existence in some way, so, uh, actually in a very specific way that's common to all of us, which is the root of our ignorance and what is that you know so it gets to this this the uh, framework of the Madhyamaka uh, path of practice which is to identify what the um, what the illusion is what the ignorance is what the mistaken belief is and then let go of that as opposed to letting go of things that are not the root of existence by not understanding correctly what's the root of samsara. Okay, so we have the ontological dimension and uh, towards the end of that first paragraph he says we have three different senses of Swabhava in Chandra Kirti's commentary on the Madhyamaka Karikas called the Prasanapada a distinction that's already partly present in the early Abhidharma literature. And these three senses distinguished by Chandra Kirti are distinguished by the terms essence, swabhava, substance, swabhava, and absolute swabhava. And uh, essence, swabhava, turns out to be uh, more, I think, more aptly defined or uh, named property, swabhava like what properties or characteristics. And uh, so substance swabhava turns out to be uh, good. Good. I see we have some head shaking, so we'll talk about that. And uh, substance swabhava that turns out to be the one that is uh, our problem. And the absolute swabhava is, uh, I found, to be the most intriguing one. So essence in the early Buddhist literature, we encounter an understanding of Swabhava as a specific characterizing property of an object. In the Melinda Panha, which is this wonderful text translated in two volumes, that's a, one of the main uh, para, what's called extra-canonical canonical works affiliated with the Pali Canon, and it recounts that a, a discussion supposedly occurred between King Melinda, which is um, some Indian derivation of the Greek name Mahendra, I think, King Mahendra from Greeks, who uh, was uh, ruled certain parts of northern India after, do you guys remember who conquered parts of India? Alexander? Alexander the Great. Yeah, and he came home and placed his buddy Mahendra in charge. 
and this guy Mahindra was or Melinda was very interested in Buddhist doctrine and he asked for the smartest best monk around or scholar of Buddhism around and he was given this gentleman named Nagasena they have this amazing con uh, conversation covering all sorts of topics many of which revolving around self selflessness egolessness and uh, and so here we have an example of a, a phenomena that has a property and uh, the pro the the phenomena is death and it has the property of causing fear <laughs> So although at this early stage it does not constitute a clearly defined piece of philosophical terminology, and this was about 150, 200 before the, uh, after the Common Era. No, uh, he gives a span of before and after, so it's earlier. It's apparent it denotes a feature by which a particular phenomena is to be individuated, thereby rendering it knowable and nameable. This understanding of Subhava is made more precise by the Sarvastivan's identification of Subhava and Swalakshana. Swalakshana is self-characteristic. The specific quality that is unique to the object characterized and therefore allows us to distinguish it from other objects, that which makes things what, it, what they are objects of specific qualities as their own because they're distinguished from the qualities of other objects. So Swabhava is understood as an antonym to the common characteristics which are instantiated by all phenomena. Chris, do you want to jump in now or? No? Okay, good. Wait till the crescendo. <laughs> The understanding, this understanding of Subhava's the specific quality of objects is further restricted by Chandrakirti's identification of Subhava with the essential property of an object. Every essential property will be part of the specific quality of an object, but a specific quality need not be an essential property. So we got a little complication here. We got two different levels or types of qualities. There's the essential quality and the uh, specific quality. The specific quality of an object is the unique combination of properties which distinguishes the object from all others. An essential property is something an object cannot lose without ceasing to be that very object. So Nagarjan observes that Swabhava in the sense of essence cannot be removed like the heat of flyer. So those are the examples he gives of Swabhava used in the sense of the essence of a phenomena or the property or characteristic, the heat of fire, the fluidity of water, and the openness of space, the final frontier. Um, skipping ahead to the next page. Uh, towards the end of the paragraph that begins with heat, he says, this conception of Swabhava therefore agrees very well with the common understanding of an essence or essential property in contemporary metaphysics, which conceives of them as the properties an object cannot lose without ceasing to be that very object. The notion of essence Swabhava is not one Nagarjuna frequently employs in his arguments concerning Swabhava. So he's not arguing against the, the uh, hotness of fire and the wetness of water. 
as being uh, what constitutes the conceptual projection that we cling to and serves as our uh, root in samsara. And at the end of the section, hence, uh, sorry, here's so Baba here meaning in this quote by uh, a certain sutra that Nagarjuna quotes, and Swabhava appears to be identified with the quality that each of the four elements cannot lose without ceasing to be what it is. It furthermore plays the role of an object-specific quality which allows the observer to individuate the elements and therefore reflect their essential qualities, that is, their Swabhava. Next, we have substance swabhava, the notion of essence swabhava, which equates swabhava with the specific qualities of an object and contrasts them with those qualities it shares with other objects. So we have this notion that objects possess qualities, which, you know, was introduced in this notion of essence swabhava, that, that phenomena possess qualities. There's essential qualities and there's specific qualities. And the implication is that there is a, a range of qualities that if every phenomena possesses, possesses and some of which are not essential. And that there's some or one that are essential. And if you take that one away, it's no longer what you thought it was. But uh, we already have this logical problem of there being a phenomena that has or possesses or owns qualities and uh, what might the relationship between those phenomena be a phenomena and its qualities so there's this idea that there's a, 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 a thing and, and this is one of the things that the re one of the readings that i was doing really hones in on is that the <clears throat> in their view there is no difference between the dharma and its quality, that they are actually one and the same. Yeah, uh, the one from Theravada Abhidharma, I thought. Uh, that one actually is the, uh, oh gosh, what was the name of it? Not the, it was the longer one. Uh, sorry, I forgot but, that. The but, real existence one. Okay, but at the end of this chapter on uh, Swabhava in this book called Theravada Abhidharma that will circulate, um, he notes, he, he actually notes the contradictory nature of Swabhava, of phenomena in this way, and says, and like accepts the contradiction, which I found to be the most interesting, one of the most interesting things. <coughs> Bless you. <laughs> That's quite a reaction. Sorry, sorry, anyway, sorry. <laughs> the, uh, the notion of essence swabhava, which equates swabhava with the specific qualities of an object and contrasts them which those, with those qualities it shares with others, serves mainly epistemological purposes so that we can like talk about things, right? Identify things. It provides a procedure for drawing a line between a variety of objects with shared qualities and therefore allows us to tell them apart. Sort of like you have your M&Ms and you open up the bag and there's, you know, the green ones and the blue ones and so forth. 
There is, however, a second understanding of Svabhava, which is of much greater importance in the Madhyamaka debate. It considers Svabhava to be a primarily ontological notion, rather than Svabhava's being seen as the opposite of shared qualities. It is contrasted with conceptually constructed or secondary existence and equated with the mark of the primary one. Rather than Svabhava's being seen as the opposite of shared qualities, which he's talking about the essence Svabhava as, as being the opposite of shared qualities. It's being the unshared or uncommon quality of a phenomenon. It is contrasted with conceptually constructed or secondary prajnapti sat. So that's conceptually constructed existence. And he calls them secondary existence, implying that he's talking about the hierarchy of existence that is um, either implied or explained in various systems where we have um, phenomena that are experienceable through direct valid cognition through our senses and phenomena that we impute or uh, infer which are secondary to those primary existence it is contrasted with those conceptually constructed ones so there's this notion that there's some real uh, um, entityness that's primary, it's not conceptually constructed, and it's equated with the mark of the primary existence. The mark, so this term mark, characteristic, um, sometimes nature, it's, is what by which, that by which we discriminate phenomena from each other, different phenomena from each other. And uh, often in uh, sutras, we will, or Buddhist uh, texts, we will see the phrase phenomena are marked by certain properties. And we all are familiar with the three marks of impermanence, suffering, and essencelessness, or the four marks, which adds egolessness as the fourth, or in the Mahayana tradition, uh, nirvana being or peace as the fourth but this notion of being marked by a phenomena being marked by impermanence and this we see reference to this idea that aryas i.e enlightened ones can see the impermanence of phenomena just like we can see their color they can see their impermanence because all phenomena are marked by their impermanence. They, they are impermanent, and that's a quality that they possess, just like their color, shape, and so forth. If we're talking about matter, material phenomena. So, the distinction between primary and secondary existence constitutes the most fundamental ontological distinction drawn by the Sarvasta Vadans. So the Sarvasta Vadans are those who profess. Vadan means those who profess. And uh, Sarva is all and Asti, that everything exists, that all phenomena we encounter exist in a certain way. Um, and they have sort, sorted them in terms of primary and secondary existence. 
primary existence constitute the irreducible constituents of the empirical world. Secondary existence, on the other hand, depend on linguistic and mental construction for their existence. When we look at the... Uh, oh, so I also circulated the chart of the dharmas according, according to these folks, the Sarvasta Adivadans. Where are we here? We're in Nagarjuna. We have a chart of 75 dramas. So it's a little hard to see. <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> I think I was drunk or something when I created this chart because I named it the 79 dharmas. <laughs> just to see it's like you were paying attention. And then I meticulously, you know, gave the English and the Sanskrit for many of them and numbered them, right? And let's see, can we focus in? So we got form, rupa, rupani in Sanskrit is uh, numbers 1 to 11, chitta, mind, there's one. And, and I'm going through these because it's helpful for you to, to know your dharmas, you know? And uh, not not the details necessarily, but sort of the big groups. The biggest grouping of dharmas is that there's created or conditioned dharmas, which in Sanskrit is samskrita dharmas. And samskrita is the same word that's used in the fourth skanda. And then uncreated elements. Elements is a clunky translation for dharmas. Asamskrita, meaning non Samskrita, and I just list here for ease the, the three types that are given in the Sarvastivadin tradition. Space, Akasha, path extinction, extinction as the result of the path, and then natural extinction, which is like the absence of things, things like fire burning out and things like that. So we have uh, matter, mind, you know, in terms of conditioned or created phenomena, there's three main categories. Form, mind, and mental factors. I'm sorry, four main categories. And then non-associated formations. And in the terminology that our author is using, the quiz is, which of these would be considered primary and which would be secondary? Any ideas? Exactly. Perfect. The non-associated formations are the secondary phenomena, dharmas. Acquisition, birth, subsistence, decay, impermanence, name, sentences, sounds, life force. These are all, as this author says, um, dependent upon linguistic and mental construction for their existence, right? And all the rest are not. And uh, under mind, well, under matter, you have the great four, causal, what's called causal form, earth, water, fire, and wind, and then resultant form, which are sense faculties, eye, ear, nose, and so forth, and sense How can, how can form be resultant and primary? There's different types of form. The uh, when they say uh, what is the term? 
causal and resultant they're not in a in a temporal sequence causal and resultant it's more like parts and holes yeah well that's a mariological sequence i mean it's still like one thing results you know the the, the whole results from the part right <laughs> but you're using a madhyamaka argument with uh, sarvastavans oh what so they they uh they get bumpers on their their lanes <laughs> they do you know well what you're getting at is um and what we didn't touch on earlier we you know we sort of talked about like who believes what and why and how and so forth and how does that impact us but it's like did sarvastivadins ever get enlightened you know if if they held wrong views did they never get enlightened and you know maybe the response to quit Chris's quips that, uh, you know, oh, they get bumpers, they get, you know, sort of exceptions for being totally inaccurate and, and imprecise and having basically primitive beliefs about reality. Um, but at the same time, it didn't seem to bother them. And they seem, you know, I, I imagine many of them gained enlightenment quite nicely, you know, even though they had these clunky concepts. They still went about their meditation and purified their their ethics and their minds and their uh, view to the extent that they uh, gave up samsara, which you know is is quite another interesting question. Is to what point does it? To what extent does it matter whether we know understand all these fine subtleties of uh, the understanding of reality, right? Why does, you know, does that actually matter? Uh, so then within mental factors, we have general ones, which are feeling and discrimination. Anybody recognize those two guys? Yeah, so those Skanda. are skandhas number two and three, right? Skanda one is form. Then we have feeling and discrimination. And they're pulled out of mental factors as separate skandhas, whereas they're really mental factors like all the rest. So when you talk about like the 51 mental factors, they're in there, but then they're also in skandhas two and three. So they get double credits for some reason. Uh, Do you know what the reason is? The Buddha says that, well, those are the main drivers for, right. for the Because if they're in belief, fact, I think on the, on the Nidana cycle, I think it was as well, Credits. They, they just have to give credit. Um, contact aspiration is not not usually the way we think of aspiration. It's more like intending intellect, prajna, mental factor. We all possess prajna and mindfulness, uh, attention, inclination, concentration, samadhi. And then we have the virtuous ones, faith, diligence, equanimity, modesty, heedfulness, non-attachment, non-harmfulness, absence of hatred, mental dexterity, I wish I had that, and exertion, which apparently is different than diligence. Hmm. Can you add that to your paper, Emily? Why is diligence different from exertion? You got Emily. it. <laughs> I'll do a four-page four footnote on it. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, 
in memory like of Carl. Carl and Olson. Yeah, exactly. Then the root afflictions, known as the root clashes, the big ones, ignorance, carelessness. That's different. Indolence, laziness, non-belief, sloth, and indulgence. These are not the normal root afflictions, right? So this is a different system. When we when we think of the fifty-one mental factors and the root clashes, the six root clashes, we're using a later system, not the Sarvastivadin system that has these. Anyway, you have this. Uh, we have. Uh, universally evil, minor afflictions, and then interdeterminate functions of like repentance, drowsiness, analysis, and investigate. These are things that can go both ways. And it's really bizarre that they put love, hatred, pride, and doubt in there. I, I think I must admit, messed this up. That doesn't sound right at all. There must so be which version do you typically use? I use the hundred dharmas of the of the Chittamachas, I can circulate that. That's one that we're more familiar with. Anyway, going back to our article, um, for uh, so let's see, uh, primary existence encompass part, primarily partless moments of consciousness out of which would be constructed secondary existence, as for example, medium-sized dry goods. Now, I think I'm, I'm missing part of a sentence because he's talking about consciousness and then suddenly he shifted to matter. So I think there's something about this. There's like partless particles and partless moments. Anyway, um, secondary existence are medium-sized dry goods and uh, tertiary existence are large, like... Uh, the major home appliances of the dishwasher and so forth. Although both classes of objects were taken as existence, only the primary ones were assumed to possess swabhava. So real, real primary existence have swabhava, and they combine to produce secondary existence. And so swabhava no longer denotes an individuating property of objects by which they can be told apart from other objects as it did when conceived in terms of essence, but rather it's an indication of their ontological status, their independent existence. To have swabhava means to exist in a primary manner unconstructed and independent of anything else. They're like the... Um, the elements in the chart, the the, uh, the chart of the chemicals. Periodic table of elements. Uh, there you go. Thank you. It's interesting because this this particular statement completely contradicts the one from what I was reading, where they really very carefully made a point of not talking about it as independent. That everything was still very much dependent. Interesting. Um, yeah, that, and that's that's like the biggest point is that Nagarjuna is uh, refuting this idea of Swabhava as being independent, and yet the, and the Abhidharmists are not really proposing a Swabhava that's independent because all phenomena are interdependent and all phenomena are changing, and so it seems like they're talking about two different things right there, right? And what's the connection? The connection is supposedly that Nagarjuna has taken 
the way that the uh, Abhidharmas describe their swabhava and sh- and concluded that based on the way they describe it and use it, they're talking about something that's independent and and discreet. And so it goes back to the Abhidharmas and that statement I made earlier about the end of that article where they have contradictory ways of understanding this notion of Swabhava and they don't mind there being a contradiction. Chris? You know, I, th- I think he's really expanding on the Abhidharmists' um, argument against selfhood. Um, you know, the, the Abhidharmists famously say that... that um, there's, there's no such thing as a self. It's, it's just a projection on these various mental factors and so forth. And Nagarjuna goes on to say, well, the same, if, if you hold that line of argumentation, the same must also hold uh, for all phenomena. So he's, he's just kind of like taking them to task for their kind of own inconsistency. Yeah, that's, a, that's the main example of the, the sort of the result of their own inconsistency in terms of what we were just talking about with dependence is they break down the sense of self into the elements and to eliminate the belief in that sense of self, they hold the elements to be real and they don't go the next step. But it's turtles all the way down. Although, although they did, it, I mean, it did seem like in what I was reading, they seemed like they understood the problems of, or the potential misunderstandings. And so, they, again, I guess it depends on who you're talking about and how it was interpreted. But it seemed like they, if you look at it from their point of view, or at least whoever this person was writing about them, that they really did view it as uh, interdependence all the way down. Skipping a paragraph, this notion of swabhava, which we're going to call substance. Swabhava is also the sense of swabhava. That's the most prominent in the Garjana's arguments. The 15th chapter of the Madhyamaka, Mula Madhyamaka Karikas, investigating notion of swabhava, begins by saying, swabhava cannot result from causes and conditions. Because if it was produced from conditions, and causes it would be something artificially created. But how could Swabhava be artificially created as it is not artificially created and not dependent on anything else? Which from the surface sounds like a really stupid sentence. <laughs> it's like how could Swabhava be created because it's not created? <laughs> And so he's circling back to their initial definition of Swabhava as, as not being, you know, like a primary existent is not created. It's by, um, and then they say everything is created. So they're just not uh, as thorough and picky un, and obsessive compulsive about their terminology as Nagarjuna is. He's just like hyper sensitive and OCD about all this stuff. Um, so substance of Bob is therefore taken to be something that does not depend on anything else. Chandra Kirti takes this phrase to constitute the definition of Swabhava. 
This is the definition of it. Swabhava is not artificially created and not dependent on anything else. So, in terms of like the needle in the haystack for Emily and Cynthia, this is what we're looking for. A definition of Swabhava in that literature in this way. Okay, and so in this case, this is the definition that Chandrakirti and or Nagarjuna are giving to it. Is that right? That's right. They're projecting that on to the... Uh, right, and th this definitely contradicts what was in the articles that say that, you know, since everything was understood to be dependent. But what they're getting at, you know, this whole notion that there's primary existence, you know, so in one chapter, it's like in one chapter of the Abhidharma text, like the chapter on interdependence, they're saying everything's interdependent. But then they've just gone through five chapters where they name all the elements as being real and, and uncreated. But we'll, we'll share that with you. Well, I, have, I have one thing I've cleared up. On, on our 100 Dharma chart, which we're more used to, Yeah. Apramada is listed as heedfulness, not exertion. Oh. It's yes, same word, same Sanskrit. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, Apramada. Good. Thank you, Eric. That's one down, 99 dharmas. I do the go. No, 99 dharmas to go. And by the way, Iswar, nice to see you. Welcome. Really nice to see you. Good, Good evening. evening. Thanks. So the notion of substance subhava, something that does not, which does not depend on anything else, is stronger than the one found in the Abhidharma literature. Okay, he acknowledges that for the Abhidharma, because some objects that have primary existence can be dependently originated. He says some, which is interesting. A conditioned object, samskrita dharma, and we saw what that means. Samskrita dharmas are all, you know, one through seventy-two. Basically, everything that we encounter will have swabhava, but is still dependent on causes and conditions. So this contra this this uh, way of understanding phenomena, dharmas, and swabhava, that is contradictory to the definition of Chandrakirti. It would be wrong, however, to assert that the Abhidharmika's only criterion for absence of Swabhava is having parts so that all other forms of dependence would be compatible with an object's being a primary existence. Uh, Joseph Walser, who has this book called uh, Nagarjan in Context, which is what Emily has been digging into primarily, cites a passage from the Theravadan Pugalapanata Atakata. Pugalapanata is the, this text's uh, designation of human types, one of the Abhidharma texts. And the Atakata is the commentary on it, usually written by Buddha Gosha. In which one example of objects existing through dependent designation, i.e., objects that do not exist in a primary way. And he gives the Sanskrit for that, Dravya Sat. It's an interesting term. Is the measuring of time and space through the revolution of the sun and the moon, which are totally dependent upon the sun and the moon. And so there, he says this is an example of myriological dependence, which is uh, a, a depend type of dependence that describes um, 
astrological bodies, the sun and the moon and things like that. There, can I just jump in? I'm a little confused. Earlier in this paragraph, it says some objects that have primary existence, and it calls that dravya sat. But now he's saying objects that do not exist in a primary way also is dravya sat. Those seem to negate one another somewhat. I, I think he's he's saying he's using the term upadaya prajnapti are the objects that don't exist in a primary way, and then contrasting that with dravya uh, So dravya is just primary existence. Right. I see. Okay. Thank you. Also, not to um just just uh just to um correct if I may a term please Mer- please Mariological refers to to a composition of parts to a whole rather than to celestial bodies. So, so the, the famous <laughs> example of a chariot and the parts of the chariot would be a mariological um, relationship. What a spoiled sport you are. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it like had to do with merry-go-rounds or something. Or like cheerful. cheerful. That's right. There you go. Okay. Um, the division of time into days and uh, depending on the rising and setting, the sun is certainly no example of mariological dependence. The latter is not part of the former. It is rather the case that the concepts of day and night owe their existence to the rising and setting the sun. This is why they are not primary existence. So we saw on that chart that time was one of the secondary, but dependently designated, or as we may also want to put it, conceptual constructs. For an Abhidharmaka, an object existing with Svabhava does therefore not have to be independent of everything in particular, it can depend on its causes and conditions. On the other hand, there are reasons distinct from having parts which explain why a thing is merely a secondary existence and therefore lacking Svabhava. There are various ways. Okay, so a view of Svabhava that's not exactly explicitly formulated by Nagarjuna. This is sort of like he's throwing this in parenthetically as listing another interesting way that uh, Svabhava is looked at. It's not explicitly formulated by Nagarjuna, but is nevertheless prominent in the Indian Tibetan commentarial literature. That is findability under analysis. And we'll often see this term. Can we find it under ultimate analysis or, or uh, extreme analysis? Chandrakirti says, worldly things exist without being analyzed. When analyzed, however, there's no self different from form and the other four constituents. There's no self different from form and the other four constituents. So um, he's not necessarily saying that uh, well, sorry. Anyway, he's saying that the self is not findable under the analysis of looking for them in the four skandhas. Sorry, the five skandhas. Well, actually, I think he's saying, in this case, not outside of the skandhas. Mm, I don't I don't think he's saying physically outside. He's saying well, different I, from, apart okay. from, apart from. Okay. 
they could be hi- it could be hiding within one of them but the underlying idea is that whatever is not ultimately real disappears under analysis so what we're left with must be the ultimately real object existing by its own nature the reason why composite objects such as chariots or the self are not ultimately real is that they do not withstand logical analysis once a chariot or self is conceptually dissolved into the parts that constitute it the objects have disappeared and all we have and all we are left with are the parts collectively conceptualized as whatever so findability under analysis and independence of other objects imply one one another so if we say something's independent of other objects then we're saying it should be findable under analysis and vice versa skip me to the next paragraph there are some cons- uh wait no let's forget about uh, western philosophy only because i know nothing about it <laughs> dependence relations in, in order for us to understand this ontological concept of substance so bob it's important to get a clear idea of what precisely is meant by the dependence of an object on another one so it's important to distinguish there's two notions of dependence which should not be confused the existential dependence and notional dependence existential dependence is an object such as an object denoted by the letter a existentially depends on objects falling under the problem property f if and only if necessarily falling under the property f if and only if necessarily I, I don't know how to read that logical formulation properly is that anyone know if and only if necessarily if a exists there exists something falling under f um, in I think in in normal language he's talking about uh, existential dependence is dependence upon parts or aspects that a phenomena exists as existentially dependent upon the parts that fall under that make it up and or first, or on the causes that cause it so the, the example he uses later is the of the a son depends existentially on a father yes thank you yeah so when we talk about uh interdependence there's really three types of interdependence that are talked about one is dependence on parts by holes and then the other is uh, results depending on causes and then the th- and those are existential dependence those two are examples of existential dependence and then the third one is the notional dependence which is conceptual imputational dependence so objects falling under the property f are notionally dependent on objects falling under the property g if and only if necessarily if some object x falls under f there will be a distinct object y falling under g that didn't really do a lot for me but uh, we know that it's a uh, conceptual imputation saying that a sprout depends existentially on its cause 
means that necessarily if a sprout exists, there will have been some objects falling under the property causes of the sprout, such as seeds, oil, water, etc. Similarly, if a complex physical object exists, so will all its parts. Therefore, the object existentially depends on its parts. Notional dependence, on the other hand, is quite a different case. And he uses the example of Northern England and of Southern England disappeared, then the identification of that uh, landmass as Northern England would be uh, a useless designation. And he says, it's interesting to note that in the later Gaelic commentarial tradition, three varieties of existential dependence are distinguished causal, when an object depends on existence for its cause and conditions. Mariological, an object depends on its parts and conceptual. So I just went through this, sorry, postulating the dependence of an object on the basis of designation, a designating mind and a term used to designate the object. Uh, the term used to designate the object is merely the name of the object. It's, it's not referring to some other technical thing, but there's um, a table. It's the actual object of the basis of designation. There's me, who thinks there is a table, and then there's the word that I'm using to indicate the table, i.e. table. These dependence relations are supposed to stand in a qualitative and doxographical hierarchy, um, categorical hierarchy. Causal dependence is seen as the coarsest understanding of dependent arising associated with the Vaibhashikas or Sarvastivadins, those schools having this, uh, similar uh, views, the Sautrantikas and the Chittamatrans. And mariological dependence is a bit more subtle, and is what uh, uh, the Glupa school, uh, which is focused on Prasangika Madhyamaka, projects as being the Svatantraka Madhyamakan view. They are assumed to understand emptiness in terms of both causal and mariological dependence. So they understand a, a more subtle version of. Uh, emptiness. Now you would think that the Sautrantikas and the Chittamatrans do, but that's not our concern this evening. The most subtle understanding which incorporates all three is associated with the Prasangikas. And uh, again, you'd be hard-pressed to say that the Sautrantikas and Chittamatrans don't understand the conceptual dependence. Anyway, skipping ahead, uh, let's see. Let's, let's go to the father and the son example. And Chris is a perfect uh, um, example of that example because uh, about six weeks ago, he, he was neither, a, he was not a father. He was just Chris and now he's Chris and a father. Given all of the interesting uh, legal situations that have been going on, the question of whether he was a father a little earlier than that could be raised. <laughs> Depends on who you ask, whether you ask the Supreme, Court, Supreme Court justices or whether you ask the large percentage of Americans who disagree with them. 
that's great. Yeah, so I should have gone back some 10 or 11 months. <laughs> okay. Uh, he, he uses this uh, example of the father and the son. And uh, in the middle of the paragraph that begins with, of course, he says, it's important to note that Nagarjuna attends the father-son example as an argumentative pattern in which different predicates can be substituted, obviously. For example, we might think as Nagarjuna's opponent does the cause and effect have their respective natures, essentially. In this case, it is it is then evident that the existential dependence between the two must be symmetric. The effect depends as existentially on the cause, but the cause also depends existentially on the effect. And he's hoping that this example helps the reader understand the, the two different types of dependence uh, relationships. This example to be like totally bizarre. Isn't first, it? He, first, he's using the father and the son to talk about this, the son depends existentially on the father, but the father only depends notionally on the son. And then he says, oh, it's symmetrical and that relationship's the same. And he's, he's like, you, that you might not does. have good reason to think that this relationship is, is symmetrical. And it's like, yeah, and why'd you use it then? <laughs> yeah, well, let's dig into it. Like, you needed another example. <laughs> Well, or that, or that he needed to explain why Nagarjuna feels that the relationship should be symmetrical. So in the first case, we have this notion that, okay, there's Chris, and he exists as Chris, and then um, he contributes to producing a child, and suddenly he's a father, and there's a child, and we don't know if it's a son or a daughter for a number of months. And um, uh, we have this notion that, that the designation of child um, is a correct one because uh, of the situation of how this uh, being came into being. And uh, we have this notion that, well, Chris hasn't really changed. It's this child that's, that is new to the equation. And Nagarshan is saying, well, Chris without a child doesn't doesn't exist anymore. Now we have Chris with a child. <laughs> when we talk about father, we're talking about Chris as having a child. And Chris's existence as a father is as dependent upon the child as the child's existence as a child is to the to the parent. So that's that's a good one to chew on. It's like what is what is the difference? Let's see. Next paragraph. Uh, returning to the understanding of Subhava in terms of substance, we should note that for Chandrakirti, such substance Subhava is qualified by its non-dependence on other objects, either existentially or notionally. So in any of these two or three ways. The next paragraph, it's evident that the notion of substance swabhava is much stronger than that of essence swabhava. In particular, we can assert the existence of the second substance swabhava without affirming that of the first. It could be the case that every object had some properties it could not lose without ceasing to be that very object, although in some cases it may be more difficult than in others to determine what those are. 
and therefore be endowed with essence Svabhava, but at the same time everything could in some way, either existentially or notionally, be dependent on something else, so that substance Svabhava did not exist at all. So in other words, things could be uh, subsistence Svabhava um, empty, empty of subsistence Svabhava, but full of essence Svabhava. Well, I mean, what that's laying out is in a is like a one way of talking about the two truths. That's true. That is a good point. Thank I, you. I was going to jump in earlier on this, but because Chris brought it up, um, one of the notes says another way of thinking about these is that the sub um, the essence of Baba can be translated as conventionally existent nature. And then substance, swabhava, true or independent existence. And then the third one, real and final nature. So that seemed to me like it was bringing up that very point that the essence, swabhava, in conventional terms, people don't really seem to have a problem with. It's when you get into the murky region toward ultimate, some sort of ultimate nature that these guys have a problem with it. So I thought that was interesting. Why do we have a problem with one of those and not the other? I, I don't think essence Savava like really purports to be doing a lot of metaphysical work and is is just sort of a way of speaking or like an epistemological concern. Um, if uh, you know, if if we if we say that you know the the essence of fire is hot. And then this is a weird example. The essence of fire is hot, and then we we like learn of some strange planet where fire isn't hot on it through various planetary forces. It's um, it it, it doesn't rock our metaphysical view, you know. Like there's there's a certain amount of fluidity and and changeability uh, within essence svabhava um, that can't exist on a metaphysical level uh, with substance svabhava. If if substance about it could could change in some way, that would mean a, a change in, in the entire metaphysical structure. Are we bound by metaphysics? If we purport to have a metaphysics, then we <laughs> should be bound by the claims that we are making. We're bound by our mistake, our mistaken belief in it. And that that mistake is that a sophisticated uh, metaphysical mistake, or is it a not? I mean, it's you know, it's it's called naive realism, right? Uh, so it's not sophisticated, but it's still a metaphysical, you know, presumption that we make, and it has, uh, you know, we could say maybe very sophisticated consequences uh, on on us. <laughs> Yeah, maybe the better example is of metals. Metals are thought to always be solid. But in fact, there are liquid metals and there are gaseous. Gaseous metals, that's cool. But that would be an essence of a mistake. Like if I didn't know that and now I've been informed, but that's not the kind of mistake that causes suffering, which I think is what Chris said was in the substance side. Right. The mis- which is the why that's the one. But we can make mistakes on either side. 
Yeah, I agree. So uh, the next paragraph in the first, which is the first in the next section, uh, sort of concludes this. It's important to note that the elaborate Madhyamaka criticism of the notion of Swabhava is directed against the stronger notion of substance Swabhava rather than against essence Swabhava, since the common conception of Swabhava was in terms of essential properties and a conception well known, as Chandra Kirti charmingly puts it. Uh, <laughs> I'll skip that. Uh, Chandra Kirti explicitly distinguishes it from his his notion of substance, Swabhava, even though it is an essential property. The heat of fire is no more the Swabhava of fire than it is the Swabhava of water. Interesting. Uh, so let's see. Skipping the, the quote and the next paragraph. For the Abhidharmakas, substance Swabhava does exist. It is the intrinsic and essential quality of ultimately real existence. Object, sorry, Dravya. And uh, so the justification of the assumption of such objects is evident if we consider the case of objects consisting of parts. An apartheid object cannot exist by Swabhava since it exists only in dependence upon its parts. For the same reasons, its parts cannot exist by Swabhava either as long as they have parts. For the defender of substances, this regress must stop somewhere. This must stop somewhere. <laughs> because even though it might explain, it might be possible rather to have a chain of explanations stretching back infinitely if we explain the properties of the whole by the properties of the parts, and then in turn provide an explanation of the properties in terms of their parts and so forth, a chain of dependency relations must terminate ultimately. That is, the hierarchy of dependency relation must be well-founded. The Amidharmakas consider the entities that are the foundation excuse me, the foundation of the myriological dependency relation to be ultimately real objects which have their properties essentially and intrinsically. These objects exist by substance swabhava. And there should be a new paragraph, but the Indian and Tibetan Madhyamaka literature contains a variety of ways for classifying arguments against the existence of substance swabhava, fivefold classification distinguishes the following kinds. So these are the famous five arguments for emptiness. And he's clarifying that it's directed against substance, swobhava. The diamond slivers, refutation of the production from existent or non-existent, refutation of four kinds of production, argument from dependent origination, and then neither one nor many. Okay. So skipping to the property argument, and actually I don't think we need to go through the property argument. And then there's the mariological argument, it's sort of like a merry-go-round, just goes on endlessly arguing. And I want to go through, skip to the, um, oh then he has the argument from change. The Garjana considers, so that's on page 14, the existence of substance Swabhava to be incompatible with change. Change comes from within. 
Uh, the third little paragraph, no thing which we perceive to be changing can exist by substance subhava. This is so because an object exists by substance subhava, that is, a primary existent constitutes an independent, irreducible, and unconstructed fundamental constituent of reality. Just like his definition of his reasoning before. Um, a, a, a primary existent can't have uh, substance subhava because subs, uh, because primary existence change and substance subhava is uh, changeless. That's sort of tautological statement. Um, but I want to skip to the absolute subhava. Although I want to note that he uses a really cool term on page 15, the second full paragraph. He's, he says the permutationist does not have this problem. And I don't want to like spend a lot of time on it, but uh, personally I love that title. And uh, I aspire to be a permutationist. Okay. Next page, 16, Absolute Swabhava. Chandrakirti describes Absolute Swabhava in the following way. Ultimate reality for the Buddhas is Swabhava itself. That, moreover, because it is itself non-deceptive, is the truth of ultimate reality. It must be known by each one for herself. He said herself, I think, actually. What the f fuck what's going on here we just like all of a sudden we have now like an ultimate swabhava we got rid of all the swabhavas that we don't like or Chandrakirti doesn't like and now we're left with the one that he does like what's going on here what is ultimate absolute swabhava talking about so I want to start with the end of this section there's absolute swabhava as essence, swabhava, and yeah, so here it is on page 20. The last paragraph, the bottom line of this way of resolving the difficulty is the claim that for Nagarjuna there are not three different senses of Swabhava but only two. Absolute Swabhava is equated with the essence Swabhava of all objects, which we could sort of uh, substitute the term conventionally real Swabhava of all objects in the same way as the property of heat constitutes the essence Swabhava of fire emptiness. That is the absence of substance, Swabhava, constitutes the essence, Swabhava, of all things. There are therefore only two different senses of Swabhava to be distinguished, namely essence, Swabhava, and substance, Swabhava. What I have called absolute Swabhava turns out to be an instance of the former, essence, Swabhava. Apart from resolving the above contradiction, this view also allows us to make sense of such characterizations of emptiness as the objecthood of objects, <laughs> dharmanam, dharmata, thusness, tatata, intrinsic nature, 
tatswarupam, or original nature, prakriti. These epithets do not equate emptiness with some objectively existent noumenal reality, but simply indicate that emptiness is a property all objects could not lose without ceasing to be those very objects. And... Uh, And I wanted to read first an excerpt from a text or a translation of a text uh, from the Buddhist tradition. It's called The Perfection of Wisdom in 8,000 Lines. So it's one of the Prajnaparamita Sutras, and it's one of the main ones, uh, one of the like more important, earlier, famous ones, the 8,000 line. And it's uh, translated by Edward Conzi, uh, more recently translated by uh, the 84,000 Project. Um, but I was too lazy to, or too thoughtless to get that version and look up this phrase there, which would probably be good to do. But What, what pages or lines are you reading from so we can look it up there? Yeah, I'll circulate from the root, from this book, the, an excerpt showing what I'm reading. But I'm reading from page 145 of this book by Edward Conzi, translated by Edward Conz, Conzi, whatever, in a, published in 1973. And uh, there's a little section header that's called Non-Attachment, and the characters are Subuti, who's one of the main uh, Shravaka proponents, and uh, the Buddha here called the Lord, just to make clear that whatever. Anyway, Sabuti, deep is the essential original nature of the dharmas. So they're just sitting around having like a back and forth, because the section before was Shariputra and Sabuti we're talking. And here we have Sabuti chatting with the Buddha. Deep is the essential original nature of the dharmas. And deep is indicated, indicative of what? Deep. In, in common culture, deep means what? Oh, that's deep. That's deep. Yeah, profound. In Buddhism, that means peaceful, right? Deep, profound, peaceful is the nirvana that I have discovered, the famous phrase from the Buddha. Deep meaning uh, inaccessible by uh, conceptual mind. The Lord responds and says, because it is isolated, you're like speaking in haikus or something, Sabuti responds, deep is the essential nature of perfect wisdom. The Lord responds, because its essential nature is pure and isolated, therefore has the perfection of wisdom a deep essential nature. Sabuti responds, isolated is the essential nature of perfect wisdom. I pay homage to the perfection of wisdom, the Lord. Also, all dharmas are isolated in their essential nature, and the isolatedness of the essential nature of all dharmas is identical with the perfection of wisdom. For the Tathagata has fully known all dharmas, has not made 
Sabuti. Therefore, all dharmas have the character of not having been fully known by the Tathagata. So he finally asked the question. <laughs> um, the Lord says, It is just through their essential nature that those dharmas are not a something. So it would be good to find a better, see if the newer translation is different and better. Their essential nature is no nature, and their no nature is their nature, because all dharmas have one mark only, i.e. no mark. It is for this reason that all dharmas have the character of not having been fully known by the Tathagata, for there are no two natures of dharma, but just one single one is the nature of all dharmas. And the nature of all dharmas is no nature, and their no nature is their nature. It is thus that all those points of attachment are abandoned. So, <laughs> what are we talking about here in this absolute svabhava? Anyone have an idea? I mean, this is great. It's like totally everything is of the nature of emptiness. It's great, but it's sort of like he just wiped out the entire Abhidharma project of, I, you know, separating things out for greater understanding, right? Yes, right. It's sort of like, why, why did they bother to do that? Why bother? They, ne they never read this one. They should have read this one first. The challenge here is that the description he's giving sounds exactly the same as the svabhava that Nagarjuna is rejecting. So the task that the Madhyamaka, Madhyamakan uh, uh, has, has ahead of them is to define what makes this different from the substance that has been rejected you know, so emphatically. Uh, and I think Westerhoff gives a pretty good explanation as to what that might be. And what is his explanation? Well, he, he resolves he, it as he, being he essence of bhava. He kind of couches it uh, within. Uh, he kind of couches it within his conversation about um, the cognitive error that we make. So, uh, un unlike Western metaphysics, svabhava is. Um, is taken to be like a mental error that is made unintentionally and automatically um, that you have to work your way out of. So it's not not sufficient to simply do your your proofs and, and demonstrate why matter has no essence, um, but to take it in through meditative action and incorporate it into you. Um, so uh, in in this sense, emptiness is being spoken of as a positive characteristic of of diluted phenomena. Uh, we, we perceive objects to exist and those perceived objects possess the nature of emptiness. Uh, and, and the metaphor he gives is that you could say that you had a um, some sort of eye disorder uh, where you thought you had like uh, white mice that were scurrying, scurrying across the top of your desk all the time. And uh, no one would ever say that, you know, in addition to being brown and two feet tall and made of wood, that the essential features of your desk include not having white mice scattering across it. 
Um, but to correct someone who had such a visual hallucination, you might say that the nature of this desk is that there are no white mice on it. Similarly, you could say that um, you could say that apples, bananas, and pears all possess the nature of being not vegetables, right? But you would never describe not vegetables as something essential to fruits. You could imagine that a world existed without any vegetables where all of those fruits are essentially unchanged. So in this way, a quality is being proposed, but not one that has any essence. Uh, the quality is, is specifically a, um, something that is meant to undermine uh, the, a false concept and that false concept being existence. The quality you, that is conventionally useful for us. Exactly. Yeah. Same basically what you said. I'm just repeating. You, you said, you used the word essence. And uh, I think you may have meant in, in, a, in a way that might have been different from the way Westerhoff is using essence in essence for Bava. Me? I did. <laughs> anyway, so so we have this notion that all dharmas are marked by emptiness. So all dharmas have the characteristic of emptiness, and it is by virtue of perceiving their emptiness that one knows the true nature of dharma, and one becomes enlightened. And so a, a lot of the controversy controversy between the different schools of Madhyamaka, Prasangika, and Swatantrika resolves, revolves around um, how do we understand the entityness of, of emptiness? And, you know, all of them will say emptiness is empty. But if the emptiness of phenomena other than emptiness is an actual object, and we saw Westerhoff call it the objectness. What does he say? The objecthood of objects, <laughs> which is his translation of dharmanam, dharmata. So dharmata is like the dharmaness of everything that's a dharma. Um, and we say that that dharmaness of everything that is a dharma, that is emptiness, is empty also. But it, it makes emptiness into a dharma. And so, you know, we get these, these odd um, resulting views such as in the Galupa tradition that emptiness is a, a real phenomena and that emptiness exists conventionally. It's on the ultimate level, it's non-existent, not, not intrinsically existent, but on the conventional level, emptiness exists and is that which a person observes and thereby experiences enlightenment. That wisdom has an object, and the object of wisdom is emptiness. And by 
wisdom perceiving directly and non-conceptually perceiving emptiness, the mark of all phenomena, liberation is achieved. <laughs> Doesn't that sound like bookkeeping, though? <laughs> it, 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 well, it, it could sound like bookkeeping to hide the a theistic view, right? Well... It, it sounds like understanding the no factor. What is nothing? Yeah, and yeah. interestingly, in in contemporary astrophysics and cosmology, um, the question is: if the universe is continually expanding, what is what is space? Is there a space where nothing exists? Yeah, what's on or, the outs? What's on the outside of the universe? Or, right. So it, the whole and and it's interesting how you know space as a phenomena for the Buddhists um, and the other schools um, is attempted to be described, but contemporary physics say that space doesn't exist until something is there. Oh, that is so cool. Isn't that, the, isn't that what uh, the Vijadra illustrated? One day he drew a little squiggle on a piece of paper and asked, what did I just draw? Or so, this is so I've heard. And, you know, people are looking at saying it's a bird or something. But it was, he was drawing space, essentially, was the answer to that, supposedly. So that's an example of what Kevin is saying, that in, in modern physics they've come to the conclusion that you can't have space without f matter. Is that correct? That's, I mean, yes, I was sort of equating his, what he said with that. So the, the, uh, the so-called space outside of the universe cannot be called space. Well, why not? Why not? Because there's a universe in it, so then that's something, isn't it? Yeah, only, but only, I don't, the, only I don't the part think, that's occupied by the universe has right. space. It's, it's I don't think... Why? There's not like a... There's not like a... Thing. An, a, yeah, a space outside of the universe the universe is expanding out into. That's... Right. A, there's a box. A, there's a big right. box. And there, there's, I think that the box, is there, there's, there's no a like universe. A, there's no like God, God's eye view at which you could, right. you could observe the right. space that you can't observe. And what was there before the substance was there? Was there such a time? Yes. Apparently. How do we know? Well, that's what they're the trying. Microwave to, background. Yeah. But but you know it it, it uh, begs the question of emptiness. And, and the idea of conceptualizing emptiness the same way as conceptualizing space. Yeah, I think there's a way we can like kind of shoehorn this metaphor into the Madhyamaka discussion of like, there's no, there's no such thing as emptiness until there's like a false dharma that fills it, <laughs> you know? And the second, the second you posit, you know, some truly existing thing, then that thing possesses the quality of emptiness. Well, isn't this the fourfold, you know, 
thing in the Heart Sutra, you know, emptiness is no other than form, form is known through and then emptiness, etc. You have to tie the two together. Let me let me address Mr. Wilcox. You've said say that again. There's 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 no emptiness until somebody proposes a really existent phenomena, and that is emptiness. And that emptiness is emptiness. Cut. Emptiness, emptiness can only be posited in relationship to a false view, but otherwise it cannot be posited at all. But aren't they saying that all conventional phenomena are marked with emptiness on the conventional level? On the ultimate yeah, but, level, but, there are no dharmas. So emptiness only exists on the conventional level. Yes. <laughs> But that's right. where that's where the presumption of true existence occurs. That, right. That's because correct. It's a, it's a mental construct, in, in a way, the same as space. Space doesn't exist until there are objects to occupy. So it, uh, Kevin just said emptiness is a mental construct. So is is emptiness a secondary existent? on the conventional level, or is it a primary existent? I, I think that's interesting because those, the, those categories are also mental constructs. <laughs> I don't know if you can evade the question that way. Well, he, uh, he, it's creative. He kind, of a, he kind of addresses that as, you know, he says William Ames proposes doing that. that uh, yeah. That it's not a quality of things, but a fact about quality of things. And he says that's just kind of like kicking the can. And now right. uh, the existence is, is a secondary thing rather than a primary thing. But you have all of the same problems. Right. He maps out this problem. He says the lack of swabhava seems to have exactly the properties of substance swabhava. So the absence of swabhava should both exist since swabhava does not and not exists since it has the same properties as the non-existing Swabhava. Which page are you on again? I'm on page, thank you, 16. Oops, you went back. On the bottom. I went back, yeah. Just above uh, the Ames solution. Okay, thank you. Emptiness, that is the absence of Swabhava, appears to be a contradictory concept. So the Ames solution, I guess you buy that at the Ames stores, and then there's Sankaba's solution. Um, Sankaba attempts to, to solve, so on page 17, Sankaba's solution, the third or so sentence, he attempts to solve the difficulty by arguing that substance swabhava, i.e. the Madhyamaka's object of negation, is to be distinguished from emptiness, by its having additional characteristics, apart from being triply characterized. And those triple characterizations were um, what we usually talk about with uh, the belief in a self on the coarse level, not produced, unchangeable, and independent. And then the, the next two are established from its own side, as if it had sides, and then a natural, not a learned notion. So it's uh, an, an innate, not acquired notion, bringing up that notion of two types of ignorance. And anyway, we're past time, past our end time, or it's a past time. 
time doesn't exist, can there be a past time? And for extra points, what's bigger, the past or the future? Anyway, thank you very much. And um, I think next week we'll we'll dive back into Jones. And uh, I pulled out the three other essays. And uh, uh, do uh, people feel okay about diving into the translations instead? Okay, let's do that. So I think I circulated that uh, syllabus and I'll send out a reminder. Any final comments or questions or suggestions? By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. The duck light goes on. Is yeah, that was duck? cool. <laughs> Is it a duck or a goose? It's a, it's a goose, and I really just did to, to distract Cynthia again. Good. <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks Sleep a lot. well. Have a good Thanks, week. Thanks, Derek. Take care. Have a good week. See you next week. Bye.